0: This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico, committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives. Uh, the book of 1 John, which is in your New Testament, it's towards the back of the New Testament. If you're new to the Bible, uh, the apostle John uh, has written uh, several Different pieces that we have in our New Testament. We're going to be looking at First John this season, and let me just let you know this before we look at the text. Um, the plan is to kind of camp out in the first chapter of First John for our Advent Sundays, which is you know this Sunday and the following two, um, and then the intention is for me to preach the entire um, book as we round into the new year. So I, I do want to spend uh, some time in First John. So we're going to be there for a while. Go ahead, and, go ahead and flip there, but um before I read the text let me let me just kind of do some orientation we've got a we've got a fifth fifth grade son we've got a couple sons but one of them's in fifth grade and he's he's gearing up for middle school next year uh we've been talking about kind of that transition into middle school and one of the things that is that's kind of uh, throwing him off a little bit is just the multiple class with multiple teachers scenario with the, the passing period and the lockers, you know, let's all reorient ourselves to middle school. And so we're kind of just walking him through that in theory right now, like talking about that, how that works. And in his little insightful ways, when we were kind of done, he, he, says, he says this uh, to, to me and Heather. He says, well, I know one thing's for sure. I'm going to need a watch. <laughs> and he just he just came to that conclusion, like you know all this craziness of the middle school. I know I'm going to need a watch to orient orient me. Um, do, do you ever feel like can you just channel that inner middle school stage of yourself, uh, like just the the confusing, you know, just some weird years in general, right? But just like that disorienting, everything is new kind of thing, and and in a sense like. You know, his, his statement, like, I just need a watch to orient to me, was like so grounding for me. Um, if you've been a Christian, again, not assuming you are, but, but many of you are, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, I wonder if you, if you might even just feel like a little bit of a middle school kid sometimes in the Christian life. Like, just disoriented. What are we doing here? Why are we doing what we're doing? Um, you know, why do we go to church again? Why am I reading my Bible? Why am I pray? What what is what's the essence of this Christian life, right? And, and much like my you know my middle aged kid there, um, here's here's what you need. You need a watch, and the watch, in my opinion, is the Christian calendar. Um, now, if you've been around Mosaic for for very long, you'll, you'll know we're not like a high liturgy kind of church. Like we don't. We don't strictly follow liturgical tradition and calendar a ton. But, but I've become convinced more recently than not um, that the, 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 the calendar, you know, the seasons in the life of the church are incredibly helpful for the Christian. Like they orient us and ground us to the Christian life. And we're in a season uh, called Advent, and let me just do a quick, you know, 30,000 helicopter Notes version of the calendar. Advent is the new year. So, you know, we all operate usually around January 1 being our new year. Well, for the Christian, it is the first Sunday of Advent, which was last Sunday. So, Advent is the four Sundays preceding Christmas. So, Advent is a season, uh, not a Sunday. So, we've got Advent season, which is a season of preparation and waiting and watching. And so we don't rush to Christmas, right? The next season in the calendar is, is Christmas. And Christmas is not a day. Um, it's actually 12 days. Um, so you heard me right, kids. Christmas ought to be 12 days, not just one day in your home. It's, it's a 12-day feast beginning on December 25th, going up until January 6th, which kicks off the, the season of Epiphany. Uh, and then Epiphany, uh, that's a season that leads us all the way up until Lent. Uh, Lent is a season of reflection and humiliation, which begins 40 days, not counting Sundays, before Easter. So we've we've got you know we've got the season le- leading from Epiphany to the Lent, to Lent to Easter, and um, but pre- preceding Easter is is the three days uh, season, which is you know in Holy Week. It's Maundy Thursday, where where Christ gave the mandate um, to love your neighbor as yourself, and He gave the mandate of the Lord's Supper. Uh, and then Good Friday, and then Holy Saturday, leading up to Easter Sunday. And then Easter Sunday is a season, again, it's, it's the opening of a season uh, of 49 days after Easter, which is a week of weeks, seven of seven, right? Which culminates in Pentecost, which is the 50th day, when the Spirit of God came. So we've got the season of, I'm just kind of walking through the calendar here. We've got the season of Lent, which concludes in the three days, which leads into Easter season, which culminates at Pentecost. And then from Pentecost all the way back up until Advent, which is a lengthy season, right? That's that's months, is what we call ordinary time. And it's called ordinary time, not because of the word ordinary, though that does work, but it's actually ordinal, which means numbered. So we just number those Sundays. And that has something to do with just the faithful plotting of the Christian life week after week, month after month, awaiting the arrival of, yet again, the cycle of the calendar, the Advent. And so I give you that kind of this, that, that landscape to, to say that I, I do think as a church, I, I would like us to lean more into the, to the season and rhythms of the calendar because much like my middle school son, you need to be oriented because you will become adrift and clueless and loss, and I, I believe God has designed things like that to ground us and orient us. So as we enter into this season of Advent, and as we look at 1 John, um, I was introduced um, to a word um, at the beginning of, of the pandemic by one of our elders, Jack. He was, he was reading a book, um, and the word that he introduced me to, and it's, it's kind of been haunting me ever since he mentioned it. Uh, it just has come up in a lot of my reading, and it was just a new word to me, and the word was liminal. Uh, he he was reading a book on what's called liminality, and it's it's a season of of transition, right? And so this this idea of a liminal season, in my opinion, really captures the essence of Advent. We are we live in a liminal season, as mentioned before. We are in an overlapping of the ages, right? The first arrival, the first coming, the first advent of Christ in the flesh. And then his anticipated second coming, his arrival, his second advent. Here we are in the liminal season. And if you're anything like me, you're very uncomfortable with that. And here's the one thing thing that I do know to be true of the God of the Bible. Is that he is often in those liminal places of our lives. The, the places of uncertainty, the places of doubt, the places of darkness, the places where we cannot see what he's doing, the places where we question and ask, are you here, God? That oftentimes is where the God of the Bible resides. And so as we look at, at this passage and as we enter into, or we're already in the midst of the Advent season, here's the question I want you to be asking yourself frequently. Where am I right now? Where am I right now in relation to my spiritual well being? Where am I in relationship to the God of the Bible? Where am I? It's the question that Advent is asking us. So let me, let me read uh, just the opening. We're going to look at the four, first four verses of, of 1 John. Uh, if you've brought a Bible, you can follow along. If not, uh, I think the words will be projected here for you to. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that your joy may be complete. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but this is the word of our God, and it will endure forever. Let's pray and ask him to bless the preaching of it. Father, as we turn yet again to your word, we ask you to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe. Lord, unless you, uh, by the powerful, wonderful mysterious working of your spirit, Uh, unless you do all that, Lord, these will remain uh, irrelevant to our lives. So Lord, make these words um, alive to us, that it would be more than ancient writings, that they would be the active, living word of the one true and living God. Help us help us to see that today. We pray these things in, in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I'm finishing up um, a novel. I don't read a ton of non-fiction. Uh, I don't read a ton of fiction. I, I'd like to read more, but this time of year, for some reason, I, I usually pick up uh, some fiction stuff. And, and A book that I've recently picked up is called The Road um, by uh, Cormac McCarthy. Um, I've actually read the book before, but I'm, I'm kind of rereading it in a, in a different way. And Cormac McCarthy's written a bunch of books. Some of them are well-known, um, uh, Blood Meridian's a famous one, uh, No Country for Old Men, maybe you saw the movie that was made into that. I think The Road was made into a movie too, but I'm reading, I'm reading The Road right now, and, and The Road is, it's, it's kind of an apo- a post-apocalyptic book um, set in America, so some sort of cataclysmic event has happened in the landscape of America, and a, and a nameless father and a nameless son are on this, this road, on a journey together, and it's a, it's a journey of survival and uh, it's really, it's a great Advent book Uh, not a great Christmas book, it's a great Advent book but it's really, really dark, well written, um, really engaging stuff and um, he, you know, Advent is a very apocalyptic type of season um, in my opinion and so I think it's just really relevant I kind of want to read a passage from you and not only do I dress like a middle-aged man but I now have to have glasses when I read from a book so sorry about that I was grieving that this morning, but let me, I want to read a little passage uh, this morning and uh, just to set the context briefly, uh, the, the, the father and the son had recently come across a really, a really big find. They found a, a pantry full of, of canned food and goods and, and some other supplies that they needed um, and they, you know, the, one of the thematic um, kind of threads that runs throughout the book is are people good? Right. And so this this idea of like the goodness of people, and, and it's there's some really dark moments in the book, but there's this this dialogue between the father and the son that I kind of want to read. Uh it's really insightful. Uh, you're gonna have to pick up on who's talking here. You're just gonna have to follow along with me verbally, um, audibly. Here's 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 between the the son and the father, talking about uh what to do with all this stuff that they've found. He says, uh We could take two of them. This is a grocery cart. We could take two of them, the boy said. No, I could push one. You're the scout. I need you to be our lookout. What are we going to do with all the stuff? We'll just have to take what we can. Do you think somebody's coming? Yes, sometime. Well, you said nobody was coming. I didn't mean ever. I wish we could live here. I know. We could be on the lookout. We are on the lookout. What if some good guys came? Well, I don't think we're likely to meet any good guys on the road. Well, we're on the road. I know. If you're on the lookout all the time, does that mean you're scared all the time? Well, I suppose you have to be scared enough to be on the lookout in the first place, to be cautious, watchful. But the rest of the time you're not scared? The rest of the time? Yeah. I don't know. Maybe you should always be on the lookout. If trouble comes when you least expect it, then maybe the thing to do is to always expect it. Do you always expect it, Papa? I do, but sometimes I might forget to be on the lookout. See, this this interaction between the father and the son, um, it clues us in um, to the Christian life and how we are, we have this proclivity to, to not be on the lookout anymore. I'm going to lose those. To not be on the lookout anymore. And, and so what, what this son is, is really um, tapped into um, is that should we always be on the lookout? And, and the father's answer is yes. You ought to be watchful and cautious and aware of all that's going on around you. Uh, you know, Jesus um, frequently talked to this about his followers, uh, particularly in, in, in the Gospel of Matthew, in chapters 24 and 25, he would tell some parables about the importance and the significance for the Christian to be on guard, to watch. He tells, uh, Jesus tells a parable of uh, what's commonly titled the, the, the ten virgins or the ten bridesmaids. Um, and uh, you know the, the essence of the parable is this. There were, there were 10 bridesmaids preparing for the bridegroom to come uh, and, and marry his, his bride, and they were waiting all night. They had their oils with lamp prepared, and then five of them fell asleep. They got tired. They, they stopped looking out. And then at midnight, the bridegroom comes and says, the marriage feast is here, and five of them have prepared. They've been watchful. They've brought extra oil, but five of them are unprepared. And they ask for extra oil, and they say, "No, we we have no oil to spare." So they have to go looking for the oil. They come back, and the marriage feast door is closed. And then Jesus says these haunting words. This is, you know, Jesus always just had one main point in his parables. He says, he says this uh, to the to the to the bridesmaids that were not watching. Right, the, the door was shut behind them. He says this. Truly, I say to you, I do not know you. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. And what I think Jesus is doing there is a couple of things. One, he is, of course, stirring his people on to be watchful to be waiting type of people, to be, to be awakened in the truest sense of the word, to be, to be cautious of his, of, his, of his return, of his coming for the great marriage feast. But the second thing he's doing is in his language there, he says this, truly, and he'll say this in other places, but here he says, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Now, what Jesus is not doing is saying, I, I don't know about you. He's not saying, I'm not aware of you. What he's saying is, I don't have a deep, close, intimate, personal knowing of you because you don't know me. Because if you knew me, you would have been watching for me. You would have been waiting for me. So here's, here's, here's what I know is true of all of us here today. That we were made for that kind of knowing. We were made to know God In the deepest, most personal, most intimate way possible. That's what we were made for. And here's what I also know to be true of us. That we are prone to distraction. That we are inclined um, to to delay our affection towards that. uh, That we are are quick to be busy. And and here's the thing. um, You know, this... I can't lay out all the ways in which we're distracted um, from waiting, but 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 there there's so many, right? I mean, it's just like, it's it, it is so it's difficult to be a waiting and watching person in 2021. Is it not? It is a it is a challenging thing to be the person who is longing for the day of redemption that is drawing near. So here's here's what I think. You know this passage in particular can do for us is it can help us to reorient our lives to having an openness with God. That the season of Advent in so many ways is an invitation to the person who longs for that kind of connection with the divine being, with, with the one true and living God of the Bible. If, if you have any inkling for that, Advent and this particular passage reorients us to that. So let let's just walk through it. Um, there's kind of there's kind of like just three really blazing big ticket items that jumped out to me that I, I want to walk us through this morning. I want us to look at first what the eternal life is. Then we're going to look at the fellowship with God, and then we're going to look at get uh, that third one, the uh, complete joy. So eternal life, fellowship with God. And then complete joy. Let's look at eternal life first uh, to understand this path. So here's the thing about First John. Uh, commentators frequently say, maybe if you're like a new Christian, some people will say, read First John. It's like, you know, the nuts and bolts. It's the basics of Christianity. Well, same thing with with kind of the text of First John. It's like if you wanna if you wanna look at the original language of Greek, like First John's a great place to start. With the exception of these opening verses, um, there it's like a grammatical uh, field of landmines. And so I'm you know I spent I spent a good bit of time navigating that field. Uh, I'm not gonna bore you with all of the discoveries, but but there are some important grammatical things that I think will help you understand the text that I want to kind of walk you through first. And the first is um, the pronouns. Um, so in our English translation, or at least in the one that I'm using, it's translated that which. So it's that which was from the beginning, that which we've heard, that which we've seen, that which we've looked upon, that which we've touched. That is, that is the translation of what's, what's called a neuter pronoun. Now, please don't go home talking about neuter pronouns with your children. Um, but here's, here's the point. If John wanted um, to specifically um, connect what he's talking about with just the historic Jesus, in other words, if he just wanted to say the historical person that we've seen, touched, heard, perceived, he would have used a masculine pronoun. But he doesn't. Uh, he uses a neuter pronoun, and, and here's the other thing that's insightful for this, is um, I don't think that this is a traditional letter in the sense that, if you notice, some of the New Testament letters will say, you know, who this is written to, the context, some greetings. John jumps right in. Here's, here's, my, here's my hot take on First on John. I actually think this was a sermon that was transcribed, and I actually think, and I'm not making this up, there's academics that support this view, that Second John was actually the cover letter to the sermon. So we'll, we'll just shelf that for now. But, but what I think is happening is this was a, a, a sermon that was read out loud to other churches. So when they would have heard these neuter pronouns, they would have expected, oh, if he's talking about the historical person of Jesus only, he would be using a masculine. But he's using a, a neuter. He's going neutral. And, and why is that? Here's the big point. The, the big point is that the first verb in verse 3, that's the first verb of the long Greek sentence, is proclaim. And so what he's saying is that those who have touched, seen, heard, and perceived Jesus was through the proclamation. Now that's very different than saying, well, you had to be with Jesus to touch, see, feel, and perceive him. What John seems to be suggesting is that in the proclamation of the substance of the good news of Jesus Christ, you can see, feel, perceive, and hear the person of Jesus. Now, so, so what he's doing is he's, he's opening um, the avenue for connection and intimacy with God to anyone who would hear these words. So again, this sermon, I think, was preached several decades after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And then, so it, we think it was probably written in the late first century, so 90 to 95. Um, and then it was recorded, and then it was circulated to other churches. And so what that did was it's saying, listen, you don't have to have a capital A apostolic connection to Jesus in order to have this kind of intimacy that we have. But but the second thing that's going on grammatically is what, what John is doing by using the language of we. Did you pick up on that? Like that which we, it's, he seems to be making this distinction, that which we have seen, we've heard, uh, we proclaim. Some, some, some scholars would say, like maybe he's talking about like this, you know, the, the community of, of John's disciples, and that could be true, but really what we think's going on here, what I would suggest is going on here, is, is more of like the magisterial sense of we, Right? John is establishing his authority to say these things to the followers of Jesus. And, and you know, he goes on, he says, you know, our fellowship. He, and he's saying that, that our joy, you, you heard me, you know, I read it as your joy. There's some variation there. But, but what, what John is saying is that I have the authority to offer you this connection with God. Um so, what is the substance of it like what what was he proclaiming? well, the substance of of what he's what he's saying here, and this is not the fullness of the good news, but it is certainly uh, key uh, key to the good news is that the eternal and transcendent God has become tangible that the otherworldly son has become entirely of this world. He's, he's taken on flesh. He's become tangible. He's palpable. So let me just, I mean, let's just for a minute um, just kind of reflect on that. I mean, first first the fact that the creator, Jesus Christ, he's, he's, he's eternal, right? He's preexistent. He, he has always existed and always will exist. There's not a time in which he began. But the eternal one enters in to humanity in time through pregnancy like he was he was in a woman's body for nine months he subject, he subjected himself in so many ways to the process of birth right like without going into details we're familiar with that process but the, the infinite one comes into the world in that way. Um, he was, you know, he had his, the, I, I was talking to my kids about this this week. He didn't have diapers. They did something there. But like he had to have his diapers changed, right? Like he was, he was dependent on earthly parents. He, he ached with hunger. He worked his way through the stages of adolescence. Right? He was a child. He went to school. He learned um, he He went through puberty he uh maybe he had acne. <laughs> he certainly had you know one of those terrible calf cramps in the middle of the night. Right? He experienced like indigestion. I just want you to get a visceral feel that the eternal one became imminent. Right? He worked a job. So for 30 years of his life, he was relatively obscure. He was an ordinary man. Uh, we think he took the trade of his father, Joseph, which was working with wood. And I know some of you work with wood. And here's the thing about Jesus. like He had no power tools um, and so it was all manual labor. He certainly knew, you know, what a sore body felt like. Uh, you can imagine he had rough, splintered hands. He understood what it meant to be exhausted at the end of a hard day of work. Right? He needed sleep. So, so I, I put all of that um, on him because... Because what John does is he says, the word of life was made manifest. And the manifestation of that word was in a person. A real, you know, lively, animated person. And, um, you know, one of the best things you can do uh, with the Bible is let the Bible speak for itself. <laughs> it's, like a, it's kind of a fundamental 101 of interpreting the Bible. What does the Bible have to say about itself? And, and, and so, like, in, in one of John's earlier writings, of the Gospel of John, you're familiar with this territory, perhaps, um, John writes this. He says that, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whomsoever should believe in him would not perish but would have eternal life. Now, for you, that, for, 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 for some of us, that might just sound like, you know, God gave his son uh, so that we wouldn't be condemned and we would have, you know, life in heaven when we die. And that, that certainly is, is part of it. But the Bible, again, gives interpretation of itself. And Jesus himself, all of God's words are Jesus' words, but Jesus himself in the high priestly prayer on John 17, he defines what eternal life is. Like, to my knowledge, this is the only place in Scripture, it's just to my knowledge, there could be other places, but that this is the definition of what eternal life is. Let me, re- let me read it for you. Do I have it up here? Yeah. This is what Jesus says. This is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Now, what, Jesus, he, what he's doing there is that language, right, with the ten virgins that he did. He's saying, if you want eternal life, this is what it is, It's to know the one true and living God through his son, Jesus Christ. That that is the essence of eternal life. And and nowhere does it seem to suggest that that is uh, post-life. That it is primarily just, you know, the ending after you die. Like eternal life begins now. So, you know, if, if eternal life is this intimate knowing of God through the human son, um, I guess I just, I would be remiss or just presumptive if I didn't ask you, do you have eternal life? And when I say that, what, what I'm not saying is, are you saved? What I am saying is do you know God? And what I'm afraid of um, is I'm afraid that for some, knowing God means knowing about God. That knowing God means having sound doctrine, good theology, reading the right books, quoting the right authors, listening to the right sermons. And um, I just, again, would feel remiss if if I didn't clue you in that that Jesus made it clear um, there will be many people with sound doctrine that spend eternity apart from him. There will be many. There will be people who come to him on the last day That day in our creed that we said, you know, the day when he will come to judge the living and the dead, we'll come up and say, Lord, Lord, did we not? Lord, Lord, did we not help plant this church? Lord, Lord, did we not tell all our coworkers about you? Lord, Lord, did we not give a ton of money? Lord, Lord, did we not? And Jesus' response is very clear, depart from me for I never knew you. And so Jesus in no uncertain terms, you know, he, he says this, here's what must occur for you to know you have eternal life. You must be born again. And again, I know that's familiar territory, you know, it's common vocabulary in our circles, but let's be certain, when Jesus was talking about being born again, he was talking to the religious of the religious, Nicodemus. He was talking to someone who had the best theology in town. And he's saying, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you must have new birth. And um, here's the thing about what, what John does in these opening verses. Is nowhere um, does he suggest that 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 new birth or having this word of life or having eternal life or even having the things that he's going to talk about, fellowship and joy, is is something that we do. In fact, it feels like, and we'll see this throughout the the whole book, it must be done to you. You must be acted upon by God um, in a way that says, "I'm I'm open to having what you're offering me. In other words, the, the God of the Bible, it, you know, he's not just like a nice gentleman, um, but, but in so many ways, uh, he's, he's patient. And so look at what John does, and, and I kind of want to move from the eternal life piece. He, t- he gives us two reasons why he's telling us, and it's, it's summarized in that so that language. So verse 3. Here's why he's telling you about the person of Jesus. So that you would have fellowship with us and with the Father and the Son and that uh, we're writing these things so that our or your joy might be complete. It's a textual variant there. Don't think it's a big deal. So the fellowship piece and the joy piece. Let's talk about the fellowship piece. Now, again, I know my audience uh, has been around the church. So, you know, if I were to, You've seen that new commercial, uh, what is it? I don't even know the name of the school. My kids love the commercial where you get on the soapbox. It's the University of U. Anyway, it's, if I were to get on a soapbox right now, um, here it is. Uh, it's, it's the usage uh, of the word fellowship. Um, in fact, I've largely eliminated it from my vocabulary because I think it has little to no meaning anymore in our context. So here's what I think you think fellowship might mean. I'm hanging out with other Christians, okay? Like, let's just bottom line it, right? If you're having a meal at someone's house, we're fellowshipping, right? If we're out in the lobby, we're fellowshipping. If we've got a big fancy building, where do we go to hang out? The fellowship hall, right? So it's like, so like, that's, that's all fine. You should hang out with Christians. I wanna go hang out in the lobby with you, but that is not what the Bible's talking about when it's talking about fellowship. Uh, the word there, it's koinonia, Uh, again, might be familiar to you, it's only used four times in John's writings, including his gospel and all three of these books, and all four of those verses are in the first seven verses of this letter. And what that tells us is, is one thing, primarily. John was addressing something specific to their context, and here's what we think he was addressing. False teachers. There had been a group of false teachers... Uh, they're commonly uh, categorized as Gnostics and Docetists, okay? Talk to your kids about that at lunch. That'll, that, that, that'll make you feel smart. Um, Gnostics believed that uh, the physical body was bad, okay? So they were, it was a completely spiritual, special knowledge type of teaching where the physical body's bad. Docetics uh, it comes from the word decao, which means to appear. Their teaching was that Jesus only appeared to be a man. He wasn't actually a man. Uh, and and both of those groups, it appears, use the language of fellowship. And the way they used that word was the way the Roman culture used the word. And here's what here's how the Roman culture and these false teachers used it. It was primarily a commitment to mutual um, mutual interests that legally bound them. So it was, a, it was a legal binding, right? Like, hey, we are in Koinonia together. We're in, a, we're in a contract together because we have mutual interests. However, it was primarily private in nature. In other words, you keep your end of the partnership and I'll keep my end and we will pursue these mutual interests. And listen to me, Christians, we do that all the time, right? Like we could be committed to a church fellowship and just do it in our own ways. But here's what John does, and he does it later in verse seven, but I want you to scroll down your eyes and give attention to that. Here's what John does to the teaching on this word. Let me read verse seven. He says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. So what John does is he obliterates the private, individualized interpretation of koinonia. He's saying, here's the only way you have true fellowship being exposed by light. And when you're exposed by light, you are seen and you are known. And John's saying, there's no other way to have what I'm talking about. You cannot be unseen and unknown and have what the Bible calls fellowship. And so, you know, I mean, let me just baseline question. Who knows you? Like, I mean, I I could really zone it in right here. Like, who knows you here? That might be a little too microscopic for you, but like, who knows you at all? If you are unable and or unwilling to be seen, known, you cannot have what the Bible tells you is, is available to you in Christ, namely koinonia. You must be known. Who knows how much you're drinking? Who knows how fragile your marriage is? Who knows how short-tempered you are with your children? Who knows you're cutting corners at work? Who knows you? The Bible's explicitly clear. If we are in the light, we are seen and known, and we have that shared life with God and with each other. So another question to ponder is, are you, willing to, are you willing to risk being known? And make no mistake about it, it is risky. It is risky to be known by people, and here's why. There's always the possibility that they will reject you. So here's, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying everybody has to know you all the time and all about you. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I don't think the Bible is saying you have to have coin koinonia with every single Christian. But I do think you have to be known. And there is the potential risk that if somebody knows the worst parts about you, they could reject you. But here's the good news of the gospel. The Father and the Son will not reject you. What John seems to be suggesting is that Christians bring their lives into the scope of God's light to be exposed and seen. Why? So that life can be shared with others. See, it's only when you're willing to risk in relationship that you can experience genuine fellowship with the triune God. Do you know where all this teaching comes from? It's from our understanding of who God is. He's entirely relational. I mean, you look at the way that the text says it. It's what John says, you know. Uh, that that which was with the father and was made manifest to us the eternality of the christ he lived in perfect relational koinonia with the father and with the spirit and there was a a, a sense of vulnerability not in the sense that the, there was like danger of risk but there was relational risk in that the father in order to rescue and redeem and renew a world that was lost in sin and rebellion, asked, invited his son to come and do the work. And Jesus risked himself. He comes into the abyss of darkness on his own willing terms. He lives as a man. He perfectly performs with flawless performance God's law. And then he's exposed as a sinner. He's treated as a sinner on the cross in order to have fellowship with you. And then, you know, the the Christian teaching is not that the the cross was the end. It wasn't the period of the statement. The statement was Jesus' resurrection from the dead and the resurrection was nothing less than God saying, there is no risk in bringing yourself to me. If you will fall on this one, you can have the deepest, most intimate, most personal relationship with me, knowing that there's no risk involved in that. I will never reject you or forsake you. Jesus' final words in Matthew's gospel, lo, I am always with you, even to the end of the age. That's what the koinonia is, but if the koinonia weren't enough, John goes on and says, here's, here's the whole point of it all. This is why I'm writing. This is why I'm preaching this to you. So that your joy would be complete. Now, I don't know what your relationship with the holidays are. Uh, I've, I've got a bit of an ambivalent relationship depending on the year. You know, some years I'm like super excited because my kids didn't comment on my lights. Other years I'm super depressed because they did. Um, but like, I feel like joy can be one of those things. Right? Like like joy is this fleeting thing that comes and goes. And it feels like there's this, this constant low level pressure, especially as Christians, that we're supposed to be like these really hap- happy people that are just things are going well for and like there's this low level anxiety that we're always supposed to have it together, right? And be happy about it. Right, like this week, Heather and I were doing our little morning reading on the couch or whatever. We do it individually, but her app was crashed. She uses an app to read her passages, and it kept crashing, right? And she just says, I just can't get in the Advent mood. Like, app keeps crashing. And I'm like, you're actually in a perfect mood. This is great for Advent. But like, just that just that fleeting nature of joy, like, it's, like it comes and goes. But here's the thing. Joy in the Bible... Um, is is something that transcends circumstances, right? It's this deeper, lasting, it's not an emotion, right? It's a posture, right? Joy is not something that ebbs and flows. Joy is this eternal, otherworldly reality. And here's why joy can be sustained, and even, as John's suggesting, complete in our life, is because Christmas is coming right? It's like C.S. Lewis. I feel like I have to quote this at least once. I'll get it out of the way now. It's it's like when C.S. Lewis says, it feels like it's always winter and never Christmas. That's what it feels like for us oftentimes. And maybe that's where you're at right now. And, And here's, you know, like maybe the pressure of having joy is missing. Like it's just crushing you really. And, and I just, that, that pressure is not coming from the God of the Bible. I'll just say that. The God of the Bible is saying, I am offering you something so transcendent that will go above and beyond your hardest and darkest of times. And it's, it's the possibility of knowing me at the deepest, most connected level. And here's what I know to be true of you because it's really true of me. Here's two things that rob you of your joy, of that kind of joy. It is your sense of self sufficiency and your sense of control. Your sense of self sufficiency basically says, "I can do this," right? It's it's bootstrap kind of like American, I, I'm, you know, a make yourself kind of world. Like I will do this, and that will sap your life from joy if you think you're sufficient to do this. But but the second thing is is just a sense of control that your life's supposed to look a certain way, that when your 401k's not producing like it ought to, when your adult children aren't behaving like they ought to, when your little children aren't behaving like they ought to, when your career is not progressing like it ought to, when you're not, you know, whatever the thing is, like the sense of what your life ought to be, what Jesus invites you into is a life of surrender. It's a life of allowing him to define your life. Relinquishing control. Stop white-knuckling for joy. You do, it's, the, it's the counterintuitive nature of the gospel. You don't do it. He does it. It's the life of falling and throwing yourself on Christ time and time and time and time again. This is the essence of the Christian life. I want to close. Um, I thought about showing the, the whole little commercial. I've got a friend who's really into cryptocurrency i'm I'm personally not in the cryptocurrency game, however, sometimes I like to think I am and so he sends out these emails they're super informative he's like i, I, I like he's a friend so I, I read his stuff and i'll go to his links but he's he's got this thing uh, he he recently sent out and it was talking about um, crypto bots and the essence of the commercial you know they're trying to get you to buy something but basically you know the way to make millions of dollars according to this guy is to 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 hire these crypto bots to do the work of trading your crypto for you. Apparently they make just thousands upon thousands of trades at just the right time during the day and so the the whole thing is you just, you know, you, you pay for this program, you put it in play and you just watch it do the work. You do nothing. And at the end of this, you know, little infomercial thing, the guy says two statements, both of which caught my attention. I did not purchase, but it's still an open bookmark in my web browser, so always a potential, um, he said this, he said, I've been doing nothing for three years, and I've made millions. Oh, okay, you know, that'll, that'll sell. Um, I've been doing nothing for three years, and I've made millions. Um, that, could, that could be one conclusion you draw from this sermon. Just sit back and do nothing. That's what Advent's about, just coming and letting God do the things. Just let him act on me, sit back and just take it all in, just enjoy the Christian life. That, that's one conclusion you could make. But, but the more interesting statement that he made was kind of at the end of the, of the little commercial. He said this. He said, but, but now that I've shared it with other people, that's where the real reward is. In other words, this guy wasn't content in being a millionaire, if he really is but he really wanted to share with other people how to be a millionaire. And again, I don't know if it's true, and I probably won't buy the product, but what he's saying is absolutely true. The good news about Christianity is you're a millionaire. You have it all. God has seen the worst parts of you, known the worst parts of you, and he'll never reject you for it because of what Christ has done. And you can sit back and do nothing about that. Or you could lean into the season of Advent where the real reward is sharing that love with the world. Because people who have experienced love like this cannot keep it to themselves. It's what turned the world upside down. These early followers of Jesus were utterly upended because of his immense love for them. Oh, that that would be true of us this Advent season, Mosaic. Let me pray and ask God to help us. Our God in heaven, it makes little to no sense of us why you would descend into the abyss of our rebellion to rescue us, Lord. You were under no obligation or duty to do that, you were simply compelled by your deep and lasting love for your people. And Lord, we, we feel like millionaires because of that. Lord, we, we believe that in the proclamation of your gospel, maybe even today, maybe, maybe for some today, for the first time, we have seen, heard, and touched the person and work of Christ. That he became like us. That he experienced our limits that he knew temptation and that he he conquered it. Lord, help us this today, to be sure, but this whole season of Advent, to long for the day in which we will be fully in his presence. That as John would write in another part of his writings, that one day we shall see him as he is and we shall become like him. Lord, would you make that part even just in part true of us today, that we would see him as he is and we would become more like him. And in becoming more like him, we would be, become liberated, that we would be free to live and to love. Lord, help us. We need your help. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. This is the sermon podcast for Mosaic Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico committed to bringing the beauty of the gospel of Jesus to the broken places of our lives.